So I'm going to uh, shift gears a little bit here and go to the Sitanipata. This is Ajahn Jeff's, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation of it. And um, there's a uh, couple of suttas. One reason I really like the Sutanipata is it, it is more like reading something like Lumpur Cha or from the Krupa Ajans. It's uh, supposed to be one of the earliest collections of suttas. And uh, even though the, the voice is very much the same as the Nikayas, the style is a little bit different. And um, I'll go a little bit into the uh, touching on the life of the Buddha, um, reading this chapter 3, Sutta 11, Nalika. And this goes into uh, the devas elated and singing and dancing at the birth of the bodhisattva and then going on to this teaching I've always found very, very inspiring, the uh, teachings to... Uh, to Nalika. And after that, we'll read another sutta in a similar vein from the octet chapter. So this is chapter 3, sutta 11, Nalika. A seat of the seer in his midday meditation saw the group of 30, Saka the king, and devas dressed in pure white, exultant, ecstatic, holding up banners, cheering wildly, and on seeing the devas so joyful and happy, having paid his respects, he said, why is the deva community so wildly elated? Why are they holding up banners and waving them around? Even after the war with the asuras, when victory was the devas, the asuras defeated, even then there was nothing hair-raising like this. Seeing what marvel are the devas so joyful, they whistle, they sing, play music, clap their hands, dance. So I ask you, who live on Mount Meru's summit, please dispel my doubts quickly, dear sirs. The bodhisattva, the foremost jewel, unequaled, has been born for welfare and happiness in the human world, in a town in the Sakyan countryside, Lumbini. That's why we're contented, so wildly elated. He, the highest of all beings, the ultimate person, a bull among men, highest of all people, will set turning the wheel of Dhamma, in the forest named after the seers, like a strong roaring lion, the conqueror of beasts. Hearing these words, Asita quickly descended from heaven and went to Sododana's dwelling. There, taking a seat, he said to the Sakyans, where is the prince? I too want to see him. The Sakyans then showed to the seer named Asita their son, the prince, like gold aglow, burnished by a most skillful smith in the mouth of the furnace, blazing with glory, flawless in color. On seeing the prince blazing like flame, pure like the bull of the stars going across the sky, the burning sun released from the clouds of autumn, he was exultant, filled with abundant rapture. The devas held in the sky a many-spoked sunshade of a thousand circles. Gold-handled whisks waved up and down, but those holding the whisks and the sunshade couldn't be seen. The matted hair seer named Dark Splendor Seeing the boy like an ornament of gold on the red woolen blanket, a white sunshade held over his head, received him, joyful in mind and pleased. And on receiving the bowl of the Sakyans, longingly, the master of mantras and signs exclaimed with a confident mind, 
This one is unsurpassed, the highest of the biped race. Then, foreseeing his own imminent de departure, he, dejected, shed tears. On seeing him weeping, the Sakins asked, but surely there will be no danger for the prince. On seeing the Sakins' concern, he replied, I foresee for the prince no harm, nor will there be any danger for him. This one's not insignificant, be assured. This prince will touch the ultimate self-awakening. He, seeing the utmost purity, will set rolling the wheel of Dhamma through sympathy for the welfare of many. His holy life will spread far and wide. But as for me, my life here has no long remainder. My death will take place before then. I won't get to hear the Dhamma of this one with the peerless role. That's why I'm stricken, afflicted, and pained. He, having brought the Sakyan's abundant rapture, the follower of the holy life, left the inner chamber and out of sympathy for his nephew, urged him on toward the Dhamma of the one with the peerless role. When you hear from another the word awakened one or attaining self-awakening, he lays open the path to the Dhamma. Go there and, asking him yourself, follow the holy life under that blessed one. Instructed by the one whose mind was set on his benefit, such, seeing in the future the utmost purity, Nalika, who had laid up a store of merit, awaited the victor expectantly, guarding his senses. On hearing word of the victor's turning of the foremost wheel, he went, he saw, the bull among seers. Confident, he asked the foremost sage about the utmost sagacity, now that Asita's forecast had come to pass. This is Nalika speaking. Now that I know Asita's words to be true, I ask you, Gotama, you who have gone to the beyond of all Dhammas. I'm intent on the homeless life. I long for the alms round. Tell me, sage, when asked, the highest state of sagacity. The Buddha, I'll teach you a sagacity, hard to do, hard to master. Come now, I'll tell you, be steadfast, be firm. Practice even-mindedness. For in a village, there's praise and abuse. Ward off any flaw in the heart. Go about calmed and not haughty. High and low, things will come up like fire flames in a forest. Women seduce a sage. May they not seduce you. Abstaining from sexual intercourse, abandoning various sensual pleasures, be unopposed, unattached to beings moving and still. As I am, so are these. As are these, so am I. Drawing the parallel to yourself, neither kill nor get others to kill. Abandoning the wants and greed where run, people run of the mill or stuck, practice with vision, cross over this hell. Stomach not full, moderate in food, modest, not being greedy, always not hungering for wants. One without hunger is one who's unbound. Having gone on his alms round, the sage should then go to the forest, approaching the root of a tree, taking a seat. The enlightened one, intent on meditation, should find delight in the forest, should practice meditation at the foot of a tree, attaining his own satisfaction. Then at the end of the night, he should go to the village, not delighting in an invitation or gift from the village. Having gone to the village, the sage should not go, forcing his way among families. Cutting off chatter, he shouldn't utter a scheming word. I got something, that's fine. I got nothing, that too is good. Being such with regard to both, he returns to the very same tree, wandering with bowl in hand, not dumb, but seemingly dumb. 
He shouldn't despise a piddling gift, nor disparage the giver. High and low are the practices proclaimed by the contemplative. They don't go twice to the further shore. This unbinding isn't sensed only once. In one who has no attachment, the monk who has cut the stream, abandoning what is and isn't a duty, no fever is found. I'll teach you sagacity, be like a razor's edge. Pressing tongue against palate, restrain your stomach. Neither be lazy in mind, nor have many thoughts. Be free of raw stench, independent. Raw stench, there's a note. Oh, and just says, see another note. Be free of raw stench. You can use your imagination. Independent. Having the holy life as your aim. Train in solitude in the contemplative's task. Solitude is called sagacity. Alone you truly delight and shine in the ten directions. On hearing the fame of the enlightened, those who practice meditation, relinquishing sensuality, my disciple should foster all the more shame and conviction. Know from the rivers in clefts and in crevices, those in small channels flow noisily, the great flow silent. Whatever is deficient makes noise, whatever is full is quiet. The fool is like a half-empty pot, one who is wise a full lake, a contemplative who speaks a great deal, endowed with meaning, knowing he teaches the Dhamma, knowing he speaks a great deal, but he who knowing is restrained, knowing doesn't speak a great deal. He is a sage worthy of sagehood. He is a sage his sagehood attained. That, uh, the end of that sutta, I find it very interesting because uh, there's, in a way, there's praise for two different types of contemplatives who know the Dhamma. There's the contemplative who speaks a great deal, endowed with meaning, knowing he teaches the Dhamma, knowing he speaks a great deal. <clears throat> so that's actually not criticized, but then it's, that's praised, but then even higher praise is given one for knowing is restrained, knowing doesn't speak a great deal. And uh, in the Guttra Nikaya, there's the uh, four types of pots, the uh, empty pot with the lid on and the empty pot with the lid off, and full pot with the lid on and the full pot with the lid off. The empty pot with the lid off is the one who doesn't know and they speak all the time. The empty pot with the lid on is the one who doesn't know but is restrained and is practicing. The full pot with the lid off is the one who knows, but it all comes out and speak all the time. And then the full pot with the lid on is the one who knows, but doesn't speak all the time, is quiet. So I, fig I thought at the very end, that's who the Buddha is describing as the one who's the full pot with the lid on. Is the, uh, he is a sage worthy of sagehood. He is a sage as sagehood attained. And then there's one... Similar to this, this is in the Octet chapter, it's uh, book four, Sutta 14, called Quickly. And it's, it's a, uh, kind of a similar in feeling to that sutta, but it, it's got a, just touches on some different points. I ask the kinsman of the sun, the great seer, about seclusion and the state of peace, seeing in what way is a monk unbound, clinging to nothing in the world. This is the Buddha's answer. I'm not sure who the questioner is in this one. Um, he should put an entire stop to the root of objectification classifications. I am the thinker. 
he should train always mindful to subdue any craving inside him. Whatever truth he may know, within or without, he shouldn't, because of it, make himself hardened, for that isn't called unbinding by the good. He shouldn't, because of it, think himself better, lower, or equal. Touched by contact in various ways, he shouldn't keep theorizing about self. Stilled right within, a monk shouldn't seek peace from another, from anything else. For one stilled right within, there's nothing embraced, so how rejected. As in the middle of the sea, it is still, with no waves upwelling. So the monk, unperturbed, still, should not swell himself anywhere. He whose eyes are opened has described the Dhamma he's witnessed, subduing danger. Now tell us, sir, oh, sorry, this goes on to the questioner again. He whose eyes are opened has described the Dhamma he's witnessed, subduing danger. Now tell us, sir, the practice, the patimoka, and concentration. And the Buddha answers, one shouldn't be careless with his eyes, should close his ears to village talk, shouldn't hunger for flavors, or view anything in the world as mine. When touched by contact, he shouldn't lament, shouldn't covet anywhere any states of becoming, or tremble at terrors. When gaining food and drink, staples and cloth, he should not make a hoard, nor should he be upset when receiving no gains. Doing meditation, not footloose, he should refrain from restlessness, shouldn't be heedless, should live in a noiseless abode. Not making much of sleep, ardent, given to wakefulness, he should abandon weariness, deception, laughter, sports, sexual intercourse, and all that goes with it. Should not practice casting spells, interpreting dreams, physical marks, the stars, animal cries. Should not be devoted to doing cures or inducing fertility. A monk shouldn't tremble at blame or grow haughty with praise. Should dispel stinginess, greed, divisive speech, anger. Shouldn't buy or sell or revile anyone anywhere. Shouldn't linger in villages or flatter people in hope of gains. A monk shouldn't boast or speak with ulterior motive, shouldn't train in insolence or speak quarrelsome words, shouldn't engage in lies or knowingly cheat, shouldn't despise others for their life, discernment, habits, or practices. Annoyed on hearing many words from contemplatives or ordinary people, he shouldn't respond harshly, for those who retaliate aren't calm. Knowing this teaching, a monk inquiring should always train in it mindfully. Knowing unbinding is peace, he shouldn't be heedless of Gotama's message. For he, the conqueror unconquered, witnessed the Dhamma, not by hearsay, but directly himself. So heedful, you should always do homage and train in line with that blessed one's message, the blessed one said. So those are uh, two suttas that... Uh, I found for myself very inspiring, energizing. Um, the, the first one, I would read that and uh, chant that one in English from time to time for myself, give, give myself encouragement. And I'll continue with being Dhamma. This section is called The Trapper's Snare. No aches and pains in the body, no fever or sickness. Can there be such a thing? We beings are caught caught in the snares of Mara, the evil one. If we are caught in the snare, Mara can do anything to us. He 
you can afflict us in our eyes, our ears, our limbs, anywhere. It is the same as when someone sets a snare for animals, digs a trapper's pit, or baits a hook. When a bird comes to eat and is caught, what can it do? The snare has it by the neck. Where can it go? It tries to fly, but it can't get away. It struggles, but can't break the snare. Then the hunter, the owner of the trap, arrives. He sees the bird caught in the snare, just as he had hoped. He grabs the bird. It struggles, and if it tries to nip the hunter or peck at him, he can break its beak. It may try to fly, but he can break its wings. It frantically tries to run. He can break its legs. The owner of the snare has all the authority here. However the bird tries to get away, there is no escaping. Likewise, we are caught in a trap. The Lord Buddha was one who saw and knew clearly according to the truth. He was a prince, an heir to the throne who enjoyed all the royal treasures and privileges. When he saw what things were really like, he renounced everything. He clearly and unmistakably saw the nature of ordinary existence and, without any regrets, left it behind. Seeing it as danger, he fled. Having been born, caught by birth, he saw that he was like a bird caught in a snare. The noose was around his neck. He saw the liability, so he left it all, just walked away. Thus, after his enlightenment, he pointed this out, showing what is harmful and what is beneficial in this realm of uncertainty. He would not allow himself to be submerged and drown in it. He refused to die there. He would not agree to be caught in the noose, so he'd be able to renounce the world and remove himself from it. Having seen, having attained realization, he then taught us to know about these things. Still, though he explained the faults and dangers, the obscurations of people prevent them from seeing. The mind is so thick, so dark. It just stays like that and keeps on accumulating afflictions and desires. In all these dhammas, if we investigate, we can see the liability and suffering in them. Just as it is said, birth is suffering. We are born into this world. Do we suffer? We have contacted birth. We have arms and legs, eyes and ears. All these things coming into existence are just suffering coming into existence. Then we have to find a way to get by, struggle to support ourselves, raise a family and so forth. We contact something and become stuck in attachment. We touch something else and get mired in that. There is headache and worry about ourselves, anxiety over children, concern over wealth and possessions. Having been born, anything can degenerate at any time. The ears can degenerate into deafness. The eyes can lose their sight. Pain can afflict the limbs or any other parts of the body. We cannot soar away because we are caught in the snare, the snare of the trapper. It is up to the trapper now to do as he wishes. We are in the trap. He can take care of us and raise us, or he can break our beaks, break our wings. This trap represents the demon of the aggregates or the demon of the afflictions. Here, the mass of humans do not understand the Dhamma and only want to escape from reality. They strive to avoid it, struggle to get away. They don't want it to be the way it is, but wish for it to be otherwise. So it leads to suffering by way of sensual desire, desire for becoming, and desire not to be. So the Buddha taught us to analyze the body and give rise to dispassion, detachment, and disenchantment, and to see that these conditions are not a being, an individual, or a self. It's like when we are working the fields. 
We put up a scarecrow when the rice is maturing so the birds won't alight to eat the crop. We gather grass and sticks, tie it all together, and cover it with a shirt and pants, and then the birds are afraid. They won't eat the rice now. The scarecrow is helping us. Now the rice has a chance to ripen, then we can harvest it, and the job is done. But actually it was only a skeleton of grass and sticks. Once we've harvested the rice, we can discard the scarecrow there in the paddy. That's all there is to it. We are just like this scarecrow. When the consciousness leaves this body, there is nothing. No different from the skeleton of grass. The scarecrow in the field does not go anywhere, and ultimately it is just discarded there. But now we can move. We can go places. We have all sorts of thoughts and feelings and desires to do things and travel about. We think about going and we go. We think about staying, so we stay. We want to sing and dance and play according to the way of the world. To put it simply, it's just as if we are waiting for the day of death. The harvest time comes, the crop is reaped, the rice gathered and carted away, and the scarecrow is discarded in the field. When the day of harvesting comes, we depart. Someone who doesn't know the beginning or end of things will feel elation and depression and go on spinning around. Not wanting to have illness, we get sick, not wanting to get old when he gets old, not wanting to die when he dies, not wanting life to disappear. But things are like this. We don't understand the law of nature, and we want things to be stable and permanent. This is me, that is her. Everything is seen in terms of me and mine, and Dhamma is never contemplated. The point is, when it gets to the end, everyone must leave it all behind. Material gain, reputation, praise, Whatever happiness or suffering there is, it is all left here in the world. They are all worldly accomplishments. We people are no different than a bird confined in a cage or a fish in a tank. Whenever the owner wants to take them, he can do so. If he wants to kill them, he can do that because they are trapped in his tank or his cage. This is suffering in the cycle of samsara. There is no way out other than learning the Dhamma to know things according to the truth. Looking at Dhamma, don't look far away. If you look far away, you won't see. If you have doubts about Dhamma, look at yourself. Look at this body and this mind. What is there that is certain or reliable? To what extent are they yourself? How much essence do they have? How stable, how permanent, or long-lasting are they? There is no such part that is like this. We have hair, and it will gray. We have teeth, and they will decay and fall out. The ears will lose their hearing. The vision will weaken. The skin will become dry and wrinkled. Why is it like this? Because we have no power to force things to be the way we want. They follow their own conditions and do not listen to the commands of anyone. It's like a river that flows to the south. If we see it and want it to flow in the other direction, can that happen? There can only be frustration then. The water flows south and we want it to flow north. When will this ever be resolved? Is the water wrong, or are we wrong? It is just a way to create frustration. Nature is like that, things following their laws. No matter how much we wish to force it or be otherwise, it just continues on in that way. What should we do? If we think like this, where can we find happiness? The river flows on in the same direction. Thinking, we cannot make it change, Trying to do something about it, we find it is beyond our ability. 
So the Buddha wanted us to practice meditation, to listen to the Dhamma and investigate, and to see according to the truth, the truth of the river. If it flows south, let it flow that way. Don't fight it. If there is a person with the eye of wisdom who stands by the river, sees it flowing south, and can accept that because it is just the nature of things, there is no conflict or frustration. The water flows in its way, and that's all there is to it. That is Dhamma. That is nature. There is aging, sickness, and death. In the beginning, there is birth. In the middle, aging. And in the end, breaking up and disappearing. Those who can contemplate and see the truth of this will be at peace. The Buddha taught about the wisdom that knows Sankara. Water is Sankara. The body that we suppose to be ourself is merely composed of earth, water, fire, and air, and they are all flowing constantly. Since being born, since being in the womb and flowing out into the world, we have kept on flowing, formerly small children, growing to adulthood, getting older and heading for old age, flowing right up to the present day, flowing according to nature. When we see this, we can see that it is not really a being, not a person, not self or other. It is just nature. Whoever will cry over it, it's still the same. Whoever may laugh over it, it's still just that. Whoever tries to impede it, it is still that. It does not endeavor to please anyone. The Buddha urged us to look into this. It's something that's not permanent or stable. If not known as it actually is, it is a source of suffering because this nature is not a being or a person, self or other. There is merely earth, water, fire, and air. That's all. In the end, they separate and break up. This is the law of nature. If we wish to practice Dhamma and live according to Dhamma, we should look at nature. Have you noticed trees? There are big ones and small ones, tall and short trees. When the dry season comes, the leaves fall. When the rains come, the leaves appear again. When the time comes to fall, they fall. When the time comes to grow, they grow. When the time comes to dissolve, they dissolve, just like us. That is the nature of Sankara. We are born, we age and fall. Then we take birth again, like the trees, like the leaves, not different. In the forest, there are beautiful trees and ugly trees. Some are bent and gnarled, some straight and tall. There are trees with pith and those without, just like people. There are bad and good people, crooked and straight people. This is also nature. But in the case of trees, what are the causes and conditions of their existence? It is the soil and the water that nourish them and enable them to grow and blossom. For us humans, it is kama. Kama means our actions, which cause us to be strong or weak, to have little or much wisdom. Trees have seasons, hot, cold, and wet, which occur according to nature. Humans appear according to kama, their actions. Doing good actions, things become good. Doing harm, the results are painful. Beautiful actions make life beautiful, while ugly actions bring ugliness. This truth of the existence of beings is called kama. Today, for instance, why did you come here? You came in search of a, tr of a certain type of kama. You want to find peace, to be happy and at ease. Taking and observing the precepts today, practicing meditation and listening to teachings is a root cause, creating the source, making positive kama. Listening to Dhamma, there needs to be understanding. 
If you have great understanding, there will be great fruit. If your understanding is little, the fruit will be little. If there is little right view, there will be a lot of suffering. With much right view, suffering will vanish and tranquility will come about. Coming here today, you're seeking spiritual nourishment. We are trying to educate the mind by looking externally and internally. This is called coming to practice Dhamma. Throughout this body, Dhamma exists. We can see it clearly without having to look far away. When we do see it clearly, there arises dispassion and detachment. There comes world weariness. There is some fear, and the mind chews it over with concern. Thus the Buddha urged us to look into the realities of birth, aging, illness, and death, to see them according to the law of nature, which is Dhamma. If we see according to the law of nature, it can be said that we are practicing Dhamma. We will see that we humans are not different. It does not matter which village or province or country we hail from. If we really look, we will not see differences. In the beginning, we were born. In the middle, there is change. And in the end, we disappear from this world. It's the same for absolutely everyone. So the Buddha wanted us to contemplate morality and Dhamma, to see that they are the same as us, and we are the same as them. Then there can be understanding and forgiveness, because we are all the same. We are kinfolk in birth, aging, sickness, and death. We are all members of one clan. If we know this, there is a sobering urgency born within the heart. When we contemplate this body, we know that we are all the same. Someone else's child is like our child. Others' parents are like our parents. Our own existence is like that of someone else's. Someone else is just like us. If the mind comes to see in this way, there is an end to harming, to envy and strife, to aggressiveness. Seeing like this is right view. If there is right view, it is path. When view is right, then thinking is right, action is right, livelihood is right, speech is right, effort in meditation is right, everything is right, having entered the path through right view. If we are doing this, there is always Dhamma practice, no matter where we are. I think that's a good stopping place. So any questions from those teachings in the Sutta Nipata or, or Lumpur Cha or comments? Seems like that was a talk Lumpur Cha is giving on the Uposita day mm -hmm. to the lay people coming and taking precepts. I think one of the things that come up listening to both the, the sutta as well as the Lumpur Cha reading is the, the kind of theme of contemplating existence, contemplating the world, contemplating samsara, the, uh, not taking anything for granted or assuming very much getting too comfortable in in samsara getting comfortable in the, in conditions reminded me of the uh, there's in the uh, samyutta nikaya there's the uh, samyutta on the i'm not even sure what it's called uh, in terms of the kind of the in, inconceivable beginnings or endings uh, the, in the, the endless round of samsara and uh, the Buddha giving descriptions of it. And in one of them, there's the 30 monks from Pawa who come to ask teachings from the Buddha, and, and the Buddha teaches them about the, yeah, the, the beginningless round and 
difficulties of, of samsara. And all 30 realized arahanship. Mm-hmm. So this, this, that, that deep contemplation. Just or through willingness. that reflection. Hmm? Just through that reflection, yeah. So, so yeah, there's sort of that, the sobering truth of, of, mm-hmm. of existence and not just not getting caught in kind of desire, attachment, proliferation. You mentioned not getting too comfortable in conditions or in samsara, but is there any comfort even? Well, there isn't, but we try to find it. We try. <laughs> you know, we try to assume it. We try to try to. It's, you end up sort of try to tell ourselves it's going to be okay. It'll be all. It'll be all right. It'll be fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> addition or addition or kind of extension <coughs> to that. Also, I picked it up just in the last part of what uh, what you were reading. Uh, from Ajahn Chah, that last little bit. It's just also the importance of depersonalizing it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the suffering, uh, and acknowledging and, ex- and, and recognizing that it's not just me, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all of you. And that's the, like, the vastness of samsara. It's not, it's not just all about me. Yeah, and it's also, that's the key for compassion. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And that that really comes out in that, uh-huh. in that whole teaching that we gave, you know, it was a little great selection. Yeah, yeah and, the, uh, and in terms of, you know, somebody who speaks so bluntly, um, but in terms of, you know, somebody with the boundless loving kindness and compassion, that was also what Lumpa Cha embodied. Mm. That's, I, I also, uh, from the second sutta, this uh, sutta in the octet chapter, uh, I appreciated and found help, found very useful this one phrase, annoyed on hearing many words from contemplatives or ordinary people, he shouldn't respond harshly for those who retaliate aren't calm. So I thought, yeah. you know, that, that sense of like, well, the, re, the annoyance of the retaliation comes from not being peaceful myself. No. So that it's a, it's a very <clears throat> profound reflection. Training oneself rather than, I think Lung Cha touches on it too, not, going around trying to train everybody else because we, we still need to train ourselves. Actually, just a quick comment, um, just how much I appreciated the um, simile of the bird and the snare. Because it's like there is no answer. Like, it's the wrong frame. It's, you know, you try this, it's still not within. It, it just kind of just struck very um, powerfully, that whole story. So just that quick comment. Yeah, no, it was a really, uh, it's a very stark image, but it's it's also really, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's exactly it. It's just, you know, everywhere you, everywhere you turn, um, this, is, this is a problem. With the teaching of, of not-self, um, sometimes I have a tendency to take it a little too far, where... I think to myself, what is the meaning of all this? If mm-hmm. we're just arising phenomena and everything is empty, mm-hmm. um, and I know the path is good, I know the path has its purpose, but outside of that, as a lay practitioner who has to exist out there, how do I kind of come back to the middle and assign things meaning again 
but still <coughs> practice not-self? Well, I mean, the, the, the reality is, is, is the, that contemplation of not-self or the actualization of not-self is really opening a doorway into incredible ease and freedom and, and uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's like our, uh, our perceptions are, and our views are turned, are upside down so that when we see through the, the lens of, of not-self or see through the lens of, of, of dukkha then what we start to experience is tremendous clarity and well-being. And so it's, it's lifting a burden of, of delusion that we, we carry. It's counterintuitive, but it's, it's, and, and it's really only um, through one's own experience that you, you start to, to uh, gain confidence, but it's also helpful to to this, that they rely on a certain confidence in seeing the the example of the of the Buddha himself. You sort of look at all the teachings and so God, this is it's hard to find a chink in the uh, in, or a flaw in the in in the logic of this. Uh, and uh, so, well, so you have to sort of build up a certain confidence because it is it goes. A, uh, 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 goes against the grain, and but then also the uh, the the sort of great teachers who uh, have uh, experienced realization that we assume to uh, uh, have experienced realization, or none of them sort of say, ah, it was all it was all a hoax. <laughs> it's sort of news that everybody's. This is really something that's incredibly beneficial and important. This was touched on in yesterday's reading as well. <coughs> Some people will think about this and lose the desire to do anything. They think that since they can't get anything that will be theirs, what's the use? Actually, it's those who relate to things as their own and work in order to get things for themselves who suffer so greatly. It's better if we can do work for the sake of doing it, all the while realizing that there's no self involved and nothing belonging to us, and training our minds to let go. Working and performing actions, we will also be letting go and giving up in accordance with the truth. It's like that idea of like doing what needs to be done rather than doing it to build up something, get something for myself. There's a lot more gratification, actually. Yeah, and it's and it's it just it really harkens back to the very 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 first teachings of the Buddha, where the Buddha said, "This is a middle way, and the middle way of uh, between both the views of uh, annihilation and the the view of eternalism, uh, or the view of gratification or, or denial. Uh, both of those are are." Uh, uh, those are extremes that, that take one to extended, extended suffering. Whereas this middle way, and that's one of the reasons why the Buddha had very first, his very first thoughts on awakening is, how am I going to teach this? <laughs> you know, it's, nobody's going to want to do this. Uh, you know, nobody's going to understand this. But it was, it was on the, uh, the encouragement of the... Uh, 
the Brahma God Sahapati, or you know, the embodiment of the arising of compassion. Yes, okay, there are beings with little dust in their eyes who, who will understand this. Realization or understanding or experience of not self, um, emptiness, doesn't mean that there is a void of experience or skillfulness. Uh, it's just that the whole thing becomes just so less personal. Doesn't mean you stop doing good things to help yourself and help other people or just say, what the heck, you know, just indulge in whatever I want to. But there's still the effects of, of action. Mm-hmm. It's just realizing the lack of personal need to identify with mm-hmm. it all. So it makes it that much easier to develop the skill uh, of skillful response, skillful action, skillful way of being in the world without assuming an identity and a, a stickiness around. Okay, so we can, nine o'clock, just past nine, we can continue our practice this morning. <laughs>